הפודקאסט בחסות סייבר אטאקס קן בי פרוונטד. צ'ק פוינט, you deserve the best security. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Everything's in its right place, Jonathan. I'm in Tel Aviv, you're in London. How bizarre is it that we had this conversation this week where I asked you if you're surviving the weather? You did. You sent very sweet little texts about <laughs> air conditioning and drinking and taking on fluids and everything. And, don't, very... do, and don't exercise in the sun. You know, I was very I was Jewish mother mode full on. And I was saying, look, you know, for you, this is just kind of Wednesday. You know, this is just 41 <laughs> degrees uh, thermometer r- breaching the 40 degree centigrade mark. That's just routine, I, th- I wondered, for Israel. But you, I mean, you rightly said, yeah, sure, but we're kind of equipped for it and we're not. And my God, is that true? I mean, just two days where the temperature was, you know, just through the roof and, and the lack of preparedness. Really came through because basically British people couldn't go outdoors there was just you had to you know there was advice about closing the curtains and remaining you know even closing windows actually because hot air would get in and finding just the one cool corner of the house and it was quite sort of scary really in a kind of apocalyptic way there were fires in parts of London because linked directly to the heat people really couldn't do uh, the usual you working day the transport network was was really under strain it was a little glimpse of what could be in all our futures and that is quite a frightening prospect before we talk about frightening future just tell me a little bit about it where is the no air conditioning every anywhere. I know because normally it's not that hot right I mean normally in Britain you can really get away with that air conditioning central yeah. heating you really need from True. the months of you know October to early March you You need heating in your homes. Air conditioning, you know, maybe once or one or two days a year, it gets a little bit hot under the collar. You cope and you move on. Uh, and people talk about, you know, when there's a nice warm day in Britain, people go, oh, summer was nice. You know, the 24-hour summer, that's the assumption. <laughs> um, people have fond memories. I do. 1976 was this heat wave summer. But it was nothing like what we just went through. So people haven't prepared for that. There is one group, unnecessarily for this podcast, I must mention, who are the exception to this rule. In my experience, apart from probably, you know, the super rich, the only people I've ever noticed who do have air conditioning units, almost like New York style or Tel Aviv style with a big bulky unit hanging out mm-hmm. their window, are the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, for some reason. It's not like they live in a microclimate. You know, with all due respect to my own neighbourhood in Hackney, it doesn't have its own extraordinary hot temperatures and its own microclimate. But nevertheless, visit a Haredi home. And apart from the plastic cover on the tablecloth, the other thing that there will be is air conditioning units. And it's, for, that was the place you wanted to be. For two days this week, every British person wanted to be invited to the home of an ultra-Orthodox Jew because there you would have been very cool. Somebody will write in to us, maybe on our, uh, our Unholy Podcast Facebook page, and tell us what it is about British Haredim that they go in for the air conditioning. But everyone else was yeah, just was... schwitzing. It was a schwitz and we were sweltering. <laughs> So you have your other Orthodox neighbors or your Israeli friends. You could have 
gone anyway. But you just yeah. sat home and suffered. That's what happened in- this week. Okay. Instead, yeah, no, we. I had a little electric fan, and I carried on heroically <laughs> working away through the heat. But I was very aware that people um, were wilting um, before our very eyes. And look, you know, on some level, uh, it was a wake-up call because people did talk this week, not for very long necessarily, but they were paying attention and thinking about climate change. Because when a country like this one, which normally would max out at 25, 26 degrees centigrade, you know, 28 on a really, really freakishly hot day, is suddenly at 39, 40, 41 People cannot deny any longer that something is happening. And you look around the English countryside and you do see it looks brown, it looks looks parched, leaves are kind of shriveling. As I said, there are fires. At some point, you've got to pay attention. And it, I mean, I'll be really honest with you. I had a feeling that I haven't sort of had before about politics, which is a level of worry deeper than is normal. Because with every other political situation, there's a little piece of me anyway that thinks, well, it will pass. You know, Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, we talked about that. Eventually, Vladimir Putin will be dead and that war will end. You just know that. Mm-hmm. And it could take a long time or a little time, but it will. this too will pass. There's something about climate change is not like that. You just think, have we as a species wrecked this beautiful planet that had this incredibly hospitable climate in which the sky was blue and the sun shone and it was cold in winter and rained when, in spring when you needed it? And have we just smashed it up through 150 years of industrial development? And is there no, once you've done that, is there no going back? So I found myself filled with a kind of existential angst about that. And I'm, you know, it's not a feeling I uh, I like because normally, as I say, I can reach for some kind of optimistic hope. This isn't a lovely conversation we're having for Shabbat, isn't it? Like, <laughs> no, but I think... <laughs> We're fun people to invite. No, I think that the important thing here and is is not to actually have a fun conversation because this is an existential threat and we should all wake up and deal with it. And, and you know, we, we discussed this, I'm sure you remember, episode 31, about uh, uh, COP26 and, um, <laughs> and about climate change, about how Israel for many, many years, didn't treat this as an existential threat. We thought to ourselves, you know, okay, there are bigger threats like Iran or, you know, uh, menacing dangers here. But no, this is, and I think slowly we are waking up to this, this is indeed an existential threat, especially in our region, right? It's great that we have air conditioning here in this country, but this is, uh, the Middle East is warming at twice the global average, right? It's going to be, by 2050, it's going to be four degrees Celsius warmer. That is insane. And if we don't all wake up, uh, we're going to be in, in deep trouble. I just, it's the disconnect really with politics that I get, mm-hmm. can't get my head around. You know, we might come on to this, but there's a, a big political contest going on here. The race to, for the Conservative Party leadership two yeah. can, is now down to two candidates. One of them will be prime minister. You know, people are really interested in the fact that Britain will either get a its first ethnic minority prime minister in Rishi Sunak, who was the chancellor, the finance minister, or it will have its third woman prime minister, third conservative woman prime minister, Liz Truss, who's currently the foreign secretary. There's all kinds of interesting arguments going on about their tax plans, about Brexit. Barely mentioned is what are they going to do about the fact that it was 40 degrees outside in a country that it's not meant to be like that and all the implications. And I just feel that politics doesn't know how to talk about this subject even because politics is about the short or immediate term. 
And it isn't about a problem which, I mean, I heard a, a climate scientist this week say we have 90 months. That's all to absolutely get our the emissions down enough that we don't go through the 1.5 degree mm. barrier, the average increase in temperature. You know, that's months. I just don't see the degree of what I think would have to happen globally, coordinated political leaders in order to get to that outcome. So, you know, like I say, I don't like being the gloomy guy. And I, I really don't. It's, I don't, you know, individually, let alone journalistically. I, just, I always want to see where there's some bit of hope. But this one sort of confounds that. I, and I am the person who scours the story looking for that line. You know, is technology going to come to the rescue? You know, you're in Startup Nation. Is there some 20-year-old genius who's going to find a way to suckle the carbon out of the atmosphere? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, absent that, we're looking down the barrel of something really terrifying. And I don't know whether we even know how to talk about it, let alone solve it. Yeah, I, I agree with the that we don't know how to talk about it. And also that politics has become so short-sighted. It also has to do with, with social media, right? That politicians are thinking about like next week or the next hour, the next minute, and not looking forward into it. I mean, remember just a few weeks ago, Israel had a prime minister. His name was Naftali Bennett. He pledged zero emissions till until 2050. But if you keep having this election cycle over and over, then all of the reforms that are supposed to happen get stuck. And we're, again, dealing with what Netanyahu said or he didn't say, as you're saying in the same conversation in the United Kingdom, instead of actually talking about the most pressing uh, issue of the day. But you know this because you know how obsessed I am about all this, having been one of the very first people to read my book, The Escape Artist. And mm -hmm. it's a book about the Holocaust. It's a book about a guy who escapes Auschwitz to warn the world. But I do find myself, and readers have said the same to me, going linking this in my mind with the thing we're talking about now. And that is what he realized, as we, you and I talked about when we did it on the podcast. You're going to tell me the number of the episode, but we, we did it on the podcast. And there, the theme was that he he gave the warning and people could not believe it. They just could mm -hmm. not digest the information. Even Jews in Hungary who were warned could not absorb what that really meant. And even as I was writing it, but especially now, I do feel there's something in us, in human beings, that cannot, doesn't know how to process a warning of our own imminent destruction. In the 1944, it was, you know, Jews facing their own very direct threat. Now it's something, you know, bigger and wider in terms of the whole planet. And um, I, as I say, I don't know whether we can really absorb it. Um, people have been sharing this meme this week, intercutting that scene from Don't Look Up when the mm. characters go on the morning breakfast show and the hosts just try and jolly it along and make it light with an exchange that happened on a British TV show this week. And it is a bit like that. You know, the climate mm. scientists are sort of banging on the on the front door saying the house is on fire and we're sort of sitting there, you know, changing the channel on TV. You know, we're not really grappling with it. And people were sharing this because it does, I think, reveal something about how sort of tongue-tied and in denial we are about this whole subject. Let's hear a bit of that. John, you're outside enjoying yeah. the sunshine. It's not too hot, it's, is it? No, it's it's absolutely lovely. It's, what, 20 degrees out here. It's perfect. But um, on a serious note, folks, um, by early next week, you can scratch 20 degrees. It could well be 40 degrees. I think... There will be hundreds, if not thousands, of excess deaths early next week. The charts that I can see in front of me are frightening. So we all like nice weather, but this will not be nice weather. This will be potentially lethal weather for a couple of days. It'll be brief, 
but it'll be brutal. Oh, so, John, you know, but... we can... We... So, John, I want us to be happy about the weather and every single... I don't know whether something's happened to meteorologists to make you all a little bit fatalistic and, and <laughs> harbingers of doom. Because all of the broadcasts, particularly on, on the BBC, every time I've turned on anyone's talking about the weather, they're saying that there's going to be tons of fatalities. But haven't we always had hot weather, John? I mean, wasn't the 76, the summer of 76, that was as hot as this, wasn't it? Uh, no. Uh, and, you know, we are seeing more and more records, more and more frequently and more and more severely. Uh, so, yeah, some people always hop back to the summer of 76, which was a freak event. Uh, but heat waves are becoming more extreme. This is yet another one which is coming down the tracks towards us. Yeah, I mean, it really echoes the film, doesn't it? I mean, in the sense that he's like the, the, the weatherman trying to say this really is a disaster, a uh, pending disaster, and the people in the studio saying, okay, but let's make it a little lighter than you're saying. Um, I'm, I am going to be that person trying to just give a little bit of optimism, just a bit, and to convince everyone that the earth is not doomed. And in the sense that um, we talked about Israel being the startup nation and the fact that a lot of the innovation is going into green tech now and trying to find solutions somehow. So let's, I mean, that is something to kind of hold on to. And plus the fact that we are also a hub of solar energy. So that something can come out of this country uh, that might be um, good news in that regard. I was going to tell you that the Ministry of Defense here in this country added uh, global warming and heat waves to the map of threats to Israel, which is good just in the sense that they're taking it seriously. I think there is a little bit of a, of a shining light there. I hope. I'm trying to convince you. I don't know if I'm actually doing that good enough. When they make Unholy the movie, Kate Blanchett will play Yoni Levy, just like in Don't Look Up, bringing a little bit of cheer, a little bit not, of light. I am not going to I'll be, not I'll be the doom that, guy. I don't think Leonardo is going to play me uh, as the doom guy. I think he would, he, he would, he would fire his agent. We'll discuss um, all this with your agent. <laughs> so let's change gears now from the mission of trying to save the world to trying to save the Middle East. Jonathan, would you introduce our guest? Walter Russell Mead is one of America's preeminent foreign affairs analysts and scholars, a distinguished professor in the subject, columnist, uh, author of many titles, but the latest is The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Walter, really good to have you on Unholy. So many interesting ideas in this new book of yours, but the core one that I think people are going to find really arresting is this notion that in terms of support for allegiance to Zionism as an opening, as a project in its earliest iteration, its support for it in America came not from Jews, but from non-Jews. Now, it's, as I say, it, it turns on its head a whole lot of preconceptions. But just tell us what the evidence was that led you to this quite arresting conclusion. Well, it was, I mean, it was a lot of things, but um, a lot of it comes from the polling data. If you look at today, if you look at polling data today, you'll find that roughly 2% of the American population is Jewish. Um, Israel is, is, you know, 55 to 70% of Americans, depending on the poll in the moment, will say they are pro-Israel. You even throw in white evangelicals, which is roughly 14, 16% of the population. You don't get to a third of the people who say they are pro-Israel. And so an explanation of American attitudes toward Israel that just stops there uh, doesn't actually seem to cover 
even a third of the cases. But then if you look back historically, um, it's just remarkable how divided the American community has, Jewish community has been over Zionism. That up until World War II, the establishment leadership of the American Jewish community was resolutely anti-Zionist. They were willing to raise money to support penniless Jewish refugees struggling in Palestine, but they insisted that any fundraising explicitly disassociate themselves from any political purpose. They did not really want to see a Jewish state. And yet the New York Times in the 19th century was the ownership of a non-Jew and was pro-Zionist. A Jewish family bought the New York Times and it flipped to taking an anti-Zionist position. No, I mean, uh, what's really interesting about that is they actually say that the roots of the support uh, to Israel come from non-Jewish sources in the United States, which obviously serves and is one of the purpose of your book or part of it is to kind of debunk this myth or this anti-Semitic myth of saying, you know, Jews rule the world, they pull the strings, and that's why the United States is pulled into supporting Israel. It's, uh, you know, to some degree, you know, there are moments like the, the historical myth that we have about Israel's independence is sort of that Harry Truman saved the Jews. And then pro-Zionist writers in the United States will say, yes, it was the courageous American Jews who helped Harry Truman do the right thing. And the anti-Zionist writers in the U.S. will say it was the conspiratorial string-pulling Jews who forced Harry Truman to override the wise opinions of the State Department and recognize Israel. But there's a kind of a common element to both of those stories, which, what uh, my friend Adam Garfinkel has called Jew-centricity. The idea that that Jews play a much larger role in in affairs than actually they do. But ju- just to unpack for us exactly the background to the the real motivation for or, or the real pressures on Harry Truman, and they go back decades before in terms of non-Jewish support for Israel, including those previous the non-Jewish family who owned the non- New York Times and uh, were were in that point sort of Zionist or proto-Zionist. It goes back so far, it almost predates Theodore Herzl in your telling. Right. Uh, just tell us about, first of all, who it was among the Americans who were these early Zionists. Right. It goes back even earlier. But also what was driving them? Uh, well, you know, some of it actually even predates the United States in that um, the American colonists in the 13 colonies were already predicting um, people like Increase Mather, one of the great Boston theologians, Jonathan Edwards, the kind of intellectual leader of pre-independence America, said that their understanding was that the Bible predicted the return of the Jews to Palestine and that this was a part of the unfolding of God's plan. Mm -hmm. So this idea has been there for a very long time. And of course, the the early Anglo-American Christian Zionism or, or Restorationism, as it's sometimes called, was linked with the British version of the same thing where there was a strong 19th century British movement in favor of a Jewish state in Palestine, and the Balfour Declaration drew on that support. So it's, it, there's something of an Anglo-American um, element to this. But five years before Herzl wrote uh, Der Judenstaat, a group of Americans uh, presented a petition to President Benjamin Harrison in 1891, calling on him to use American influence to try to foster the creation through diplomatic means of a Jewish national home 
in Palestine. And this petition was signed by John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who later went on to become President William McKinley, and a galaxy of religious, journalistic, and cultural leaders of the Anglo-American establishment. American Jews actually were appalled by this. Um, you had very eloquent statements written of why mo the modern Jew is not interested in Zionism. Uh, in fact, Reform Judaism, which was the largest religious movement among American Jews, explicitly renounced the idea that Jews are a people for whom statehood is an aspiration. So I, I actually at one point even thought of subtitling the book, Don't Blame Israel on the Jews. <laughs> that would sell well. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I have, to, I have to be the Israeli in this conversation. Um, and, and I want to ask, one of the, I think, most important lines you have in the book, you, you write, the state of Israel is a speck on the map of the world. It occupies a continent in the American mind. And that's essentially what the book is about, about this hall that Israel has on the American psyche and on American imagination, as we said, long before the Zionist movement. And as an Israeli, I sort of have to ask, is this good or bad for Israel? I think it's, it's both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, because their fate has become so tied up with that of Israel, the Palestinians are also the sort of recipient of this obsession. Mm -hmm. And again, for both peoples, it gives visibility, it gives access, prominence, but it also means that you have all of these people involved in your affairs who don't see you as you, mm -hmm. who see you primarily through the lens of their own culture, their own minds. And so the Israeli-Palestinian conflict turns into a kind of morality play. And people in America get very passionate about this not necessarily without, with a lot of links to what's ap actually going on on the ground at any given moment. So, you know, the Palestinians have suffered tremendously because for so long Americans only looked at this issue uh, through a lens that, that essentially didn't have any room for Palestinian perspectives. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm not sure that it, that a kind of a sentimental pro-Palestinian movement isn't also like some of the earlier sentimental pro-Zionist movements that actually don't help very much. Um, it's also it's it's interesting to note, by the way, that the movement for a Palestinian state has received far more financial support, official support, and effective diplomatic support from the United States than Zionism ever did. That you know, and yet it's interesting, we don't hear a lot about the all-powerful Palestinian lobby that is pulling the strings in American politics. It's completely fascinating, this idea that a place that is less a real place with real people, more an idea and a notion in the imagination. But if you're needy to come bringing the Israeli perspective, I'm going to bring the diaspora Jewish perspective, which is, I suspect there will be delight as the reaction to your book, because it will be read as a rebuttal or a reply to the now, in some ways, notorious Mearsheimer and Walt book, The Israel Lobby, with a capital L, whose thesis was, in a way, the other way around, that it was the Israel Lobby, perhaps broadly defined to include non-Jews as well, but the Israel Lobby was in this role of string puller. To what extent, you know, do you welcome that reading of it, that you are 
reversing that logic. And then I wonder further if diaspora Jews will, on the one hand, be relieved, good, it's not, as you said in your now-ditched subtitle, you know, don't blame the Jews for Israel. But on an, on the other hand, if it is cast instead as the product of the imperial powers of the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, America and Britain, as it was the Balfour Declaration, then in a way, a lot of the left-wing progressive opposition to Zionism as an imperialist movement could sort of draw comfort from your thesis. It isn't the national liberation movement of the Jews. It's some imperialist project. Right. Well, I have to say, first of all, this this is really a work of history of me trying to understand a difficult subject. And so it's not written to achieve a particular pol- specific political result. Mm-hmm. And at one point I say in the book whether uh, that I hope that readers, whatever their views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or Zionism, will find this clarifying and helpful. Um, to the extent that it is an attack on the Israel lobby thesis. I think it, in some ways, the deepest intellectual uh, challenge that it, it tries to pose to that is to the idea that domestic politics are, are essentially irrelevant to, to foreign policy. Okay? Saying here that Israel didn't become strong because it had an American alliance. It gained an American alliance because it had grown strong. And there is, I think, one of the one of the deep misperceptions people have about Israel is first that U.S. and Israel have always been allies, and then Israel's strength is entirely due to this alliance, and that, and you actually see a lot of political action saying if we could somehow weaken the the American support for Israel, then this the Zionist entity will fall to the ground once it's unsupported by this colossus. But again, if you look at the history, um, you know, up until the 67 war, Israel had very little relationship with the United States. And it was French weapons mm-hmm. that won the 67 war. It was French scientists who contributed to the Israeli nuclear uh, project. If one were to imagine that the U.S.-Israel alliance for any reason would come to an end, I can see a number of countries, Russia, China, India, all of whom would be quite happy to enter a relationship with Israel. Actually, I expect the French wouldn't mind stepping back into that spot. Um, so this idea of poor, helpless Israel only propped up by the United States, and again, in the United States, only really propped up by the loyalty of, of Jewish Americans, that is both a an emotional comfort object for diaspora Jews in the United States and a sort of convenient hate object for anti-Semites. But it just isn't grounded in the way things are, at least as far as I can see. You know, it's incredible. I was reading the book and I thought, my first thought was, this is so interesting. My second is, what a brave man to take on this discussion (laughs) and jump into this quagmire. But I mean, it's interesting. And and Jonathan noted, I mean, obviously, this whole podcast is a conversation between Israeli Jew and diaspora Jew. And I was reading through the discussion of the Truman and and the whole UN declaration and and the establishment of the state of Israel. And it's amazing. on, On one hand, as he says, he was relieved to see the Jews you know, it's not the, the Jewish power, it's other issues. And I was thinking to myself, really? Because the ethos of Zionism is that we convinced the world with our just cause, you know, and it's suddenly you're like, oh, we're not as powerful as we thought. It's an interesting read of, I think both right. of us read it a little differently, that whole sort yeah. of argument that you have there. 
Well, I think the reality that Stalin played a greater role in in the, Israel's independence than Truman, um, you know, to me it looks pretty clear because without those Soviet arms, the Czech arms, and again, the fact that the Israelis win the war of independence with weapons originally designed for the Nazi Wehrmacht is one of the most astonishing sort of pieces of history I think one can imagine. But again, we, we talk about the Zionist lobby in, in America. When the UN votes on the partition plan, the U.S. immediately puts an arms embargo on both sides. I mean, what could be fairer than that, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, the British are constantly supplying the Arabs with weapons and training them. And just as, and the Zionists make the point all over, this is just like the Spanish Civil War when the Western arms embargo de facto helped the fascists. Uh, you're doing the same thing. None of this moved the American needle at all. Mm -hmm. It just didn't have an impact. And if Stalin hadn't started to smuggle arms to the Yishuv, I don't know how that war would have come out. And the tension, you know, between liberalism and Zionism is, is actually is something I try to bring out, that Herzl's core point was that liberal order will not save the Jews. If the Jews of Europe trust to the Enlightenment, to Republic of Laws, to the power of human rights, they're all going to be killed. That was, that was Herzl's message. And it was deeply unpopular with assimilated European Jews for all the obvious reasons. And today, by and large, you can see diaspora Jews, especially in America, tend to be Jews whose experience tells them that Herzl was wrong. But many Israeli Jews are people whose family experience or own personal experience tells them that Herzl was right. Mm -hmm. And this question of whether Israel should trust to sort of the liberal world order, liberal principles, United Nations ideas, take risks for peace, all of these things, should, should go that way, or should go, no, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and you've got to use realpolitique. That's been at the heart of Israeli politics. It's also, I think, the split between many diaspora Jews and many Israeli Jews all comes back to this core sort of element of tension. Herzl was a liberal who loved the liberal enlightenment, wanted to live in a liberal state, worked for a liberal newspaper, hoped that Israel, the, the Jewish state, would be a liberal place, but who also felt that liberalism was too weak to protect the existence of the Jewish people. This tension you're talking about is what we talk about on this podcast a lot. It's the notion that, in a way, diaspora Jews are from Venus and Israeli Jews are from Mars. Uh, one is particular and believes in strong defense and the other is sort of universal. And as you say, it puts its trust in uh, international institutions. I suppose in the book, you say that the moment where it all came together in a way was 1947, where trusting in the lib new liberal institution of the United Nations to allow for the creation of the Jewish state. But here's the thing I wanted to ask you. You're not yourself Jewish, and yet you lay out to American Jews what would be quite a sort of diff perhaps difficult thought to process, which is that in some ways you, Jews in America, exist less as people and more, as we were saying before, as notions in the American imagination. You chart that historically back in the end of the 19th century and onwards and even before 
before the foundation of the Republic. But what does that do? What does it say for American Jews if they are more an idea, a sort of figment in the American imagination than actually flesh and blood real people? Well, I say, first of all, for every minority, this is, you know, sort of an inevitable reality that the majority doesn't know as much about you as you know about them and isn't as interested in you as you are about them. And there's nothing new about this in Jewish experience. There are ways in which the structure of American society has made it much more hospitable to Jewish participation from a very early date than many other. One of the themes in the book is that the the difference between the American approach to the question of a Jewish minority and the enlightened European approach is actually quite different. That in Europe, the idea was that Jews could join with emancipation. Jews could assimilate into the wider society by giving up the idea that Jewish identity had a national expression. So you were a French citizen of Jewish origin, as French as your neighbor. Or And you were a German citizen of Jewish art. That was the ideal. And I think Herzl's insight, you know, was that this was too fragile and artificial a construct to survive the historical storms that he saw coming. In the American system, it was more from the very beginning of the American colonial experience, we had a kind of a denominational multi-layered identity. So, you were a Christian, but you were an Anglican, or you were a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist. And they were, they, those are differences, but somehow there is a, an overarching commonality. You're from Massachusetts, you're from South Carolina, you're from Virginia, but you are an American. And then as you get more immigration into the U.S., you could be Irish, which is a religion in, in the U.S. It's an ethnicity that also has a certain religious identity though not every Irishman is a devout Catholic, in general, the Irish are, are a national group and a religious body. So that in the United States, in this evolving American society, a Jewish ethnic group, which also had a certain religious and cultural character, was not a unique, strange thing that was the sort of constant source of interrogation and, and suspicion. It was one of many such elements sitting in a society whose sort of peace and harmony kind of depended on making room for these elements. In that sense, the sort of American mythos has worked, re, you know, better for Jews, I think, than, than virtually any other diaspora experience going as far back as we have records. But yes, it doesn't take away this idea that it's still a minority, which most Americans may know, you know, a handful of individual Jews outside of a, a few areas where Jews are particularly thick on the ground. But, but basically through media presentations, through news events and so on, not personal. Again, in this, Jews are not unique, that minorities often do not recognize themselves in the way they're presented in a general culture. It's interesting. I'm listening to you, Jonathan, talking about how Jews are in a way a figment of the imagination. I felt like 
part of what you were trying to talk about is how Israel is kind of a reflection of their own internal struggle and own questions about foreign policy. And I wonder what all this means. And, and you say it's basically based on the fact that Israel is generally popular. What if this popularity is waning? What does it mean for Israel if it's becoming less and less of a, let's say, consensus in the United States today? Well, I think it. I would guess it'll largely depend on the future of American foreign policy generally, and then how does middle, the Middle East fit into American foreign policy? Because the United States decides that its foreign policy is going to continue to be global in scope and sort of order building and, and those kinds of things. And the Middle East is seen as maybe more important than we recently thought now that the oil price has gone up and we're fist bumping the Saudis. Um, so in that sense, Israel's importance rises and a Biden administration that many thought was sort of primed to have a lot of conflicts with Israel or to treat it, hold it at arm's length as part of a general reorientation of, of the Biden administration toward the Middle East. You're seeing an elevation of the place of Israel. Mm -hmm. And the reality now that Israel and the Arab states, most of the Arab states are pull, trying to pull the U.S. in the same direction is pretty profound. You know, in that sense, I think we're likely to see the objective importance of the Middle East and the objective importance of Israel in that uh, create a linkage. I think it's also the case that that while U.S. and Israel interests often diverge, they are at some strategic level pretty tightly aligned in that the core U.S. geopolitical interest in the Middle East seems to be to prevent any other country from dominating the region because that country would then have the power to interrupt oil flows, disrupt the world economy, and so on and so forth. Israel is existentially also committed to that because Israel itself is too small to dominate the Middle East in that way. Don't tell us that. We think we're very, <laughs> very strong, <laughs> but not strong actually strong enough to or organize the region. Mm -hmm. And so if Iran or Turkey or some other country tries to do it, Israel and the United States will inevitably see the strategic picture the same. They may differ on tactics and so on and priorities, but it will look like the same problem to both of them. And now I think at this point where the Arab countries no longer think that there can be a kind of Pax Arabica in the Middle East and that, in fact, they need help both from the United States or someone and Israel to keep maintain Arab independence. The linkage, the objective linkage of interest is closer than ever. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, the conceptual underpinnings of the relationship are really very strong. Now, that could change. Iran could fall apart. Um, the Americans could decide we don't want to be in the Middle East anymore. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that could change. And if our strategic conceptions or the strategic reality changes, like any other two countries, the U.S. and Israel would move in different directions. Uh, it's, it's not every week on Unholy we have a uh, luminary of foreign policy scholarship on the podcast. So I want to ask you something outside the immediate region that we always focus on. This might be our last question, but about, because earlier in the podcast, we've been talking about the climate crisis. And then I'm just interested to know whether you see those people you were talking about before, the idealists around a global order, even, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt and the others who imagined global government, 
in terms of fighting the climate crisis, they were right, weren't they? I mean, you cannot deal with something as serious as this and as pervasive of this without global action. So what chances do you see, what prospects do you see, if any, for the kind of globally coordinated action that would be needed to deal with this climate emergency? Well, I, I actually don't. I would challenge the the assumption there that integrated global action needs to happen. What you may see is that leading countries for their own reasons take steps and may find coordinating these steps. there, But, you know, sort of trying to establish a UN committee oversight that then tells everybody, okay, here's your carbon allocation or whatever is unlikely to work just because domestic politics, not just in the U.S., but virtually everywhere. I think the last time I looked, I don't know if any country was in compliance with its commitments under the Paris Accords. So um, if global governance is the only solution to the climate change problem, it won't be solved any more than, you know, look at nuclear proliferation. That's a far more direct threat to human existence than climate change. And in 70 plus years, you know, we're, it's not working very well. We're no... We're farther away from the abolition of nuclear weapons today than we were in 1945. So I think this, this idea that, that we all get together and all make binding agreements and all swear oaths of mickle might that we will under no circumstances violate these agreements. That's not how the world works. You know, the, the Kellogg Briand pact did not end war, uh, even though it was a very inspiring piece of diplomacy. And the Paris Accords will not end climate change, even though they are very interesting. However, you know, an interest-based approach to this question, China actually is far more vulnerable to climate change than the United States. Our climate in America is so rotten anyway uh, that, uh, you know, I think that's maybe one reason that people are so, you know, climate change has been slower to gain as a big political issue here. It's like 105 Fahrenheit in the summer and minus 20 Fahrenheit in the winter. How could it get worse? And tornadoes and hurricanes. Come on, floods. Uh, it's uh, Europe has very nice weather most of the time. Maybe UK accepted. Not, not this um, week. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think it's going to be a grand bargain that does it. But I see a lot of hope for intelligent action that states or groups of states undertake in their own interests and in their own way. The book is The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel and the Fate of the Jewish People. A strong recommend from us on Unholy. Uh, Walter Russell Mead, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Look forward to seeing you guys again. Thank you so much. That was great. That was a very interesting conversation, and I think there are points there in the book and in what Walter Russell Mead is saying that are very interesting and original. Not only the uh, thinking behind the support, right, for Zionism, which didn't come from Jews, actually came from non-Jews uh, in the United States, but also that notion, Jonathan, of, of I think, American foreign policy in general, right, that it's looking at a mirror. It's looking at a reflection of the a discussion in the United States and not seeing maybe the countries themselves, not seeing Israel or any other uh, country around the world. 
Yeah, it's the perception of Israel that is mm -hmm. there rather than the reality of right. Israel. And I don't think it's really just his thesis only applies to America. I think the mm. European conversation, the British the conversation, the Western conversation is about this image, mirage even, of right. these two peoples rather than the reality. And it now makes me wonder, his book has provoked me into wondering if maybe that's how it is, not just peculiarly with the Holy Land, as they would call it, but you know, maybe this is how we all see all foreign policy conflicts through some sort of imagined, sure. or you know, through our imaginations rather than through reality. Anyway, Walter Russell, me, we're very grateful to have had him on the podcast. We have um, some awards to hand out. I think. We um, do. Should I go first with a little chutzpah nomination and a rather interesting little object? Actually, I think it's the first time maybe we've had an inanimate uh, object being our chutzpah award winner. It is the Netanyahu loyalty necklace. It is, you can see it, um, or if you look, we'll put a little bit in the show notes for the podcast so you can see it, we'll link to it. Uh, it's on a pendant, it's gold, and it is looks like in some ways a gold coin. There is the Star of David, and there in relief is the heroic, almost imperial face of one Bibi Netanyahu. And it is the Netanyahu loyalty necklace that we are told Likud primary candidates are being urged to wear in order to show their loyalty to the great leader. To me, it looks like sort of kitsch, but it also, I mean, unbelievable that we've got to this state of affairs. You know, here, the the former leader, Boris Johnson, has a little cult of loyalty of his own, but even I can't imagine British Conservative members of parliament wearing a necklace with his face on it. I mean, Netanyahu is still alive. He's still the leader of the Likud. And the idea that he is being memorialized and glorified like this, it seems to me such hubris that um, we will give a little trophy to this little trophy. So the Netanyahu pendant, you win our chutzpah award for this week. A chutzpah award worth its weight in gold. Um, <laughs> I'm not actually sure it's real gold. But look, um, first of all, I just have to comment. I'm, I, You know, I appreciate people who do serious work. And I'm just saying, just a necklace, no earrings to go with the. It, it's just, it's not serious, is all I want to say. <laughs> but I think what's interesting about this story, uh, as you said, there are liquid members who are distributing this. Some wore it, some didn't. Um, but no, I think what is interesting about this is Netanyahu instantly detaching himself from this, right? And saying, forget the loyalty to me, be loyal to Israel, be loyal to the Israeli flag. And why is he doing this? Because being the savvy politician that he is, he's trying to woo. Remember, we're in an election cycle, Jonathan, we're slower than you. We're going to have a new prime minister after the UK has a new prime minister, but still we're in an election process. He's trying to woo the sort of what we call the soft right wing, right? The people who left the Likud, who were, you know, upset at the fact that there's this cult of personality in the Likud of Netanyahu. And he's trying to say, no, 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 forget it. There's no cult of personality here. Whatever, you know, gold pendants notwithstanding, forget that. Just be loyal to, to the country. So this is what he's trying to do. But if you want uh, the necklace, I could just go online and order it for you, Jonathan. As the kids would say here, you're all right. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't have to do that. It's so, um, <laughs> or, or putting on my rictus face of British politeness, that's terribly kind of you, your need. But there's no need, really. Um, there's no so, need at all. 
um, for that one. Uh, so yes, chutzpah nomination. What have you got for us in the more cheery mensch-like department? I'm, I'm going to uh, stay in the Israeli politics realm because we uh, haven't dealt with it a lot in this episode. And I want to uh, give it to uh, Matan Kahana. He's a member of uh, Knesset. He used to be the Minister of Religious Affairs. And he uh, stopped the traffic on Ayalon North, which is the main sort of highway in Israel, because of a cat that was trapped under his vehicle. So he saved the cat. That is number one. And then, just to make the story even better for you, because this man is begging for a mensch award, the cat scratched him and he had to go to a clinic to get a tetanus shot after saving this cat. So this is a nice story about an Israeli politician did something good. And I just wanted to bring it to the mensch awards this week. I, it, and the cat itself could rival the pendant for the chutzpah award, right? Because that is a cheek. Somebody Def- saved your life yeah, and you yes. then give them the needness, you know, some tetanus uh, or necessitate a tetanus shot. Chutzpah, bad cat, but mensch for Matan Kahana, um, who I'm just looking at a picture of him now. He's got the, quite the backstory, um, serving as a fighter in the elite, Sayat Matkal. And also you know, he kind of looks the part. I'm just now right, thinking, right. is the cat savior got ambitions for higher office? You know, well, saving he the was, cat could be part he, of his profile. You know, he was, uh, I think it's safe to say, uh, Naftali Bennett's most loyal soldier in uh, Yamina and uh, definitely someone who had his aspirations. He was relatively a moderate uh, uh, minister of religious affairs, tried to sort of break the uh, stronghold of the chief rabbinate in this country, especially when it comes to Kashrut reform uh, and things like that. But that's not the reason he's getting the Mensch Award this week, but he's getting the Mensch Award for, um, you know, rescuing felines. I think that's nice. No, we're very happy to do that. Now, remember, you can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, where we're at to Jews. We are Unholy Podcast on Facebook. Uh, people have been giving comments, feedback, suggestions, ideas. Do keep them coming. We are very grateful. And we will thank Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat, Rom Atik and Irad Eshel for original music. I hope the weather is normal next week, Jonathan. We're enjoying the cold here, I can tell you that. It's a little bit cooler, and that's good with me. See you next week. See ya. A podcast behasut, cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.